Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 5 The Gentleman's Gentlemen. The next two weeks saw the company running over to Brooklyn to play the Greenpoint Theatre and the Orpheum, just filling in rather than actually starting to work the Orpheum time, more's the pity. Then we found ourselves travelling back up to the Bronx to play the Lowe's National, another brand-spanking new palace of fun, where we fared no better. One late night, Charlie and I found ourselves tramping up the stairs of our mould-ridden brownstone lodgings together, while Stan and Freddy were acquiring the fixings for another gas-jet fry-up. Well, he said with a shrug, it looks like this will be our last week. Alpha's been trying to book us onto every circuit going, you know, but no one will give him a look in. We're too big for small time, and not big enough for the big time. It's pretty hopeless. I didn't know that. No, that's right. We didn't want company morale to drop any further. I flinched at this unsubtle reminder that Charlie and Alf were officer class while I was a mere private. We reached Stan and Charlie's room and he let us in before going on. I suppose I'm resigned to it now, but you know we will be the first Carno company to slink back from America with its tail between its legs, don't you? And the governor's to blame for insisting on that dreadful piece. It's no wonder no one likes it. But do you think he will see it that way? No, neither do I. I could see that Charlie was bitterly disappointed with how the American venture had gone, and fearing the awful stigma of returning a failure. When Stan and Freddy turned up with the ingredients of our late dinner, Charlie threw himself into his violin playing even more manically than usual, as if trying to obliterate his troubles with noise and movement. Our final week headlining the bill with the wow-wows at Lowe's National was not a hit. It was the sort of huge auditorium that swallowed up an act like ours. Everything had to be bellowed at top volume, and gestures had to be wide and sweeping, so all subtlety was lost. Not that subtlety was the speciality of the wow-wows, of course. Did I tell you this one? Archibald, Charlie. I say, what's for breakfast? Blazer, me. There's two eggs for you, but they're both rotten. Archibald, Charlie. What, that one bad and that one bad? Blazer, me. Yes. Archibald, Charlie. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> One for the Comedy Hall of Fame, that, I'm sure you'll agree. Anyway, after the show one night in that last week at Lowe's, I was sitting alone at the bar, a gloomy place, furnished and finished in dark wood with dark tiles on the floor and stained glass in every window. In the wide-arched mirror ahead of me, surrounded by fancy green and turquoise tile work, I could see that Charlie was holding court, having come out of his slump somewhat now that hope was pretty much gone. I had decided to take a stool, in the hope that Tilly might slide over and join me, which, however, she showed no sign of doing, and I found myself pondering an uncertain future in the bottom of my glass, both romantically and professionally. The prospect of returning to England after only a couple of months in America was very disheartening. If only we'd made a go of it, I might have seen some of the country that had sparked my imagination ever since I was a lad, reading about cowboys and Indians and wagon trains and prospectors in my penny bloods but the rocky mountains and the sweeping prairies seemed as far out of reach as they'd ever been. Even more unsettling, though, was the certainty that after a notable failure such as ours, Carno would split the company up and we would be at his mercy. Charlie would be all right. 
He'd be heading up a new company sooner or later, but the rest of us would be scattered to the four winds. Would I end up touring with Stan again, or Mike, or Freddy? Unlikely. And Tilly, what about her? I watched her and Charlie chattering together amongst the crowd on the far side of the room, and felt sure that Charlie would engineer for her to accompany him wherever he was sent, just as he would be sure to fix it so that I did not. Perhaps I would have to play the card that I still held up my sleeve, the knowledge that would finish Charlie with Carno, just to stay close to Tilly. Not a move that was likely to create a particularly friendly atmosphere, I thought, but still, it might have to be done. I raised my hand and called the barman over. "'Another one, please, my friend,' I said, and as the fellow reached for another bottle for me, I became aware of a figure standing beside me, looking down at me, with a slight frown on his face. "'Help you?' I asked. The man became flustered. "'Excuse me, sir, I, I didn't mean to offend. It's just... you are from England, aren't you?' "'Eh?' I said. "'The accent is unmistakable,' he said. "'Yours too.' He smiled, and then the barman returned with my drink. "'Blow me if this English fellow didn't insist on paying for it, too.' I decided to let him, even though I realised I was letting myself in for more conversation. "'Your very good health,' I said, clinking my glass against his, which was a small one with what looked like a sherry in it. "'My name is Dando.' "'Jobson,' my new acquaintance said, and we shook hands. "'Well,' I said, happy to let him do the talking. "'What line are you in, Mr. Jobson?' "'I am currently employed as a butler,' Jobson said, taking a small sip. "'A butler, really? An English butler in New York, eh? How about that?' "'There are more of us than you perhaps imagine,' he replied. "'English serving staff are, are quite the prize. "'We're a status symbol, I believe the term is. "'Well, well, good for you.' "'Yes, it seems the Americans are extremely jealous of the British class system,' he went on. "'They like the idea that we come from a long and distinguished history of servitude.' "'His deadpan delivery masked a dry sense of humour, and I found myself laughing. "'Maybe I should look into that line myself,' I said, taking a long swig of beer. "'You could certainly do worse,' Jobson said. "'Oh, I'm pretty sure I am doing,' I said. "'I'm a comedian, appearing at the brand-new theatre next door, Lowe's National. "'I'm with the Fred Carno Company. "'You've heard of us?' "'Oh, indeed. A most reputable mark.' "'You're familiar with the vaudeville scene, are you?' "'Jobson allowed an enigmatic smile to reach his lips. "'You could say so. "'And I should very much like to see your performance.' "'Well, you'd better be quick. "'We're off next week, back to dear old Blighty to face the music,' I said bitterly. "'Oh, I see. "'Well, then I shall certainly do what I can to attend.' and with that he gave a little bow and moved off. Yeah, I'll bet you shall, I muttered to myself, and to be honest I didn't think any more about him. Then, a couple of nights later, we all stood in the wings waiting our turn, like condemned men lining up for the gallows as usual, just waiting for the executioner to finish with the preceding stunt-cycling and ball-punching team. I never got to see their act, by the way, I was always behind the curtain when they were on, but from their bill matter I winced to imagine it. Oh well, I muttered to Mike Asher next to me. Only a couple more and then we're done with all this. Mike nodded grimly, steeling himself. A spattering of applause marked the end of the preceding turn, the curtains whisked open, and the wow-wows were off again. Frank Melroyd and I began our feeble cross-talk and... Hang on, what was this? Laughter? They never laughed at this bit, but here it was. Gales of laughter rolling in from the stalls, the sound of people really, really enjoying themselves. We'd almost forgotten what that was like. I glanced over at Frank, and he flicked his eyebrows at me, and we began to enjoy ourselves too. Then Charlie came on as Archibald Binks, and they adored him. Everything he said, right from the start, just absolutely hit the spot, thumped them right on the funny bone, and that was what it was like for the whole turn that evening. Every half-assed bit of business raised the roof, every stinking pun brought the house down. 
We rode this roller coaster of mirth for all it was worth, and when the curtain came down, the cheers almost blew it back up again. Six curtain calls we were obliged to give, having got used to slinking down the stairs to the green room to hide our sorry faces, and the whole audience seemed to be on their feet, red-faced, beaming, tears streaming down their cheeks. You never saw anything like it. Afterwards, we spilled down the stairs, laughing, clapping one another on the back, and I grabbed Charlie by the shoulders. "'That's more like it, eh?' I said, and he shrugged, bewildered. I could see from his face that he was as delighted and surprised as anyone, and we surrendered ourselves to the sheer joy of the night. Everyone hugged everyone else, and at least if we were going down, it was with all guns blazing. In the midst of our celebrations, a well-built gent, square-faced, middle-aged, with his greying hair scraped and oiled into a severe centre parting, poked his head round the door of the green room and waved his pale, broad-brimmed hat from side to side to attract our attention. "'Hey, fellas!' he shouted above the din. "'That was a swell show! A swell show! Yes, sir!' We had never before heard the word swell used as an adjective, but we were all in a great mood, so we smiled benevolently. Our visitor beamed back. "'Who's your manager, guys? Who makes the bookings?' Freddie Kay stepped forward. "'Mr. Reeves is his name, sir. Alfred Reeves.' "'Reeves,' the burly gent repeated, committing it to memory. "'Excuse me, sir. I, I hope you don't mind my asking,' Freddy said. "'But what would you call the style of that hat?' "'This? Why, it's the boss of the plains, the finest hat in these United States. "'Perfect for sunshine, perfect for rain, and stylish as all hell. "'Do you like it, son?' "'I do, sir,' Freddy said. "'Then it's yours and welcome,' the stranger said, winging it across the room. "'I have a dozen more at home. "'Now, where will I find this Reeves of yours?' "'Oh, thank you, that's very kind,' Freddy cried. "'Alf will be backstage securing the set just now, "'but if you'd like to leave your card, I'd be happy to—' "'Sir?' The newcomer was already heading for the staircase, "'clearly intent on searching for Alf right that very minute. "'Freddy tried to hold him back, but just missed his sleeve. "'Sir,' Freddy hissed, "'I'm afraid you can't go up there. "'Members of the public are not allowed.' "'The gent flashed him a big toothy grin. "'Oh, I don't reckon anyone will mind little old me,' he said, "'then winked and disappeared into the shadows.' Little, I said. That fellow's built like a brick outhouse. We got changed in record time and decamped to the bar next door in high spirits, particularly Freddy, who was highly delighted with his new hat. I suppose it's an improvement on that ragamuffin old newsboy cap, Mike muttered, but it does make you look like a cowboy. The whole company was there, around one big dark wood table, and Charlie stood everyone a drink, so he must have been in an exceptionally good mood. Well, Stan said, raising his glass to us all, Perhaps the wow-wows isn't as bad as all that. Oh, I'm pretty sure it is, you know, Tilly said, and everyone started laughing all over again. All of a sudden I became aware of a presence beside me, which seemed to have ghosted there without my noticing, and which announced itself with a polite cough. I wonder if I might disturb you for just a moment, sir. I turned, and there was Mr. Jobson, the English butler. Hello, I cried, full of the joys of a long-overdue success. Of course, join us. "'No, thank you. I, I, I would not presume. "'I just wanted to thank you for your excellent suggestion.' "'I was puzzled for a moment. "'My... what? Hm? "'When we met the other evening, "'you suggested I should pay a visit to the new Lowe's National "'to see the Carnot comedians. "'A very good evening to you all, by the way,' "'he nodded courteously at the group now earwigging "'instead of minding their own business. "'Oh, so you came. Excellent. "'You picked a good one. Did you enjoy the show?' "'Very much.' "'Very much indeed, and so did all my esteemed colleagues.' "'Jobson's answer seemed to be imbued with a weight of hidden meaning which eluded me. "'I see,' I said, not really seeing. "'Well, we are very pleased, aren't we, lads?' 
"'And lasses,' Tilly put in as everyone raised their glasses to my friend and gave him a hearty cheers. Jobson gave a small smile at this, and then leaned in to continue as a hum of conversation began again around the table. "'Allow me to explain. You see, yesterday I took advantage of a free afternoon to pay a visit to the New York Society of British Butlers, Valets, Nannies, Maids, and Gentlemen's Gentlemen, of which I am a founder member, only to find that their annual social event was on the point of falling through. Miss Alma Ray had double-booked herself, and she elected to fulfil the other engagement rather than theirs.' "'Right,' I said, sympathetically. "'Oh, dear. Well, that's bad luck.' "'Indeed. Well, I used to be the chair of the Entertainments Committee, and they all still look to me for guidance, because the gentleman I work for is in the business, as they say, and so when I suggested a trip to see the Carnos, the motion was carried nem-con. I laughed. "'Hey, everyone, are you getting this? There was a whole party of butlers from the old country in. Not just butlers. Butlers, valets, nannies, maids, and gentlemen's gentlemen, to be precise.' "'Good heavens! How many of you were there? Oh, upwards of two hundred, I should say.' Stan's mouth dropped open in astonishment. Two hundred, he said. "'And all of them laughing their heads off, too,' I cried. "'Well, I think all of us know what it is like to deal with a Mr. Archibald Binks, eh?' Charlie grinned and bowed his head modestly, most unlike him. "'So who is this gent you work for now?' I asked. "'Is he English?' Jobson shook his head. "'No, in point of fact, he is from Seattle.' His name is Mr. John W. Considine, and here he is now, sir. At that moment, right on cue, as it were, the street door opened to admit Alf Reeves, accompanied by this square and bareheaded gentleman who had been so eager to congratulate us just a short while ago. Mr. Jobson glided around to Freddy and murmured softly in his ear, If I might offer a tip, sir, a toothbrush dipped in warm soapy water will freshen up the sweat band. Then he swished away and ghosted over to attend to his employer, while Alf came over to our table, as thrilled as I'd ever seen him. "'Listen, everyone,' he hissed, "'don't get too excited, but I've just been speaking with Mr Considine there, who owns the Sullivan and Considine circuit, and he would like to book us for a six-month stint, headlining in his theatres, if you can believe such an extraordinary thing.' "'We can,' said Stan. "'His butler is a friend of Arthur's.' "'Is that so?' Alf said, as Charlie suddenly enveloped me in an emotional hug. No one was more surprised than me, but I gathered my wits well enough to catch Tilly's eye over Charlie's shoulder, as much as to say, See, I'm not competing. We can get along just fine. Well, Alf went on, the important news is this. We're staying in America. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Chapter 6. Mummingbirds. Our elation at not having to return home as failures was tempered by the realisation that we'd been booked on the basis of a pretty freakish night's work, and the prospect of playing the wow-wows for another six months to audiences not entirely composed of sympathetic servants from old Blighty did chill the blood rather. Then I mentioned to one Georgie Lockerbie, who was sharing the bill at Lowe's with us, feats of strength, that we had been booked to play the Sullivan and Considine circuit. He nodded ominously and said, Ah, Siberia time. It appeared that Considine was based in Seattle on the far side of the continent, while Sullivan, his partner, was a New York man, a former New York congressman no less. Their vaudeville chain stretched the entire width of the country and included some houses in Canada. The rise of the railways made it feasible to have a national circuit, but the distances and travelling involved were brutal, apparently. We picked up some titbits about our new bosses as well. John Considine had begun by becoming known as Seattle's Baron of the Box House, box houses being a disreputable combination of brothel, saloon, gambling den and low-class theatre, and had made his fortune by entertaining prospectors on the way to and from the Klondike. He'd moved up market in recent years, but not before shooting a police chief to death in a feud, becoming one of the first pioneers of the vaudeville boom. There was another impresario called Alexander Pantages, who had a rival circuit with theatres in many of the same cities as Considine. Their rivalry had developed into a vicious feud, with each side poaching the other's headline turns and committing various acts of sabotage. Sullivan, the partner, was a character known everywhere as Big Tim Sullivan. He'd been a big cheese in a political organisation called Tammany Hall, before settling in the Lower East Side to count his kickbacks and take care of the many pies he had his fingers in. Not a man to mess with, by all accounts, unless you fancy taking a walk on the bottom of the East River in chain-link boots. Considine loved the wow-wows, and was the only man we ever met who fitted Carno's notion that Americans were obsessed with secret societies. He himself had started an organisation called, if you can believe this, the Independent Order of Good Things, so maybe our stupid brotherhood of wow-wows had genuinely struck a chord with him. Our misgivings were forgotten, however, on the last night at Lowe's National, when the set and costumes for the Wow Wows were not just packed away, they were labelled for storage. What's this, Alf? Mike Asher said, slapping a packing crate. There's some mistake here, surely. Oh, didn't I say? Alf grinned smugly. I've spoken to Mr Considine, and he would very much like us to play Mumming Birds from now on. We were all stunned by this development. But what about the governor? someone said. Alf's grin got even wider. Well, what he doesn't hear about won't hurt him now, will it? And whatever else he was going to say was drowned out with whooping and cheering. The hated wow-wows were dead, and there was a whole damn continent to see. Things were looking up. <coughs> Mummingbirds, the sketch we were now going to rehearse up and play, was a legendary Fred Carno piece. We were able to inherit, and air out thoroughly, costumes and a set that a previous company had left in storage, and all of us had played it back in England at one time or another. It was like a rite of passage for a Carno performer, the most important single item in the repertoire. It was a simple idea. Mummingbirds was essentially a music hall bill within a bill, featuring a series of acts of deliberately excruciating awfulness, with the comedy coming from the raucous reactions of a fake audience housed in two pairs of fake boxes constructed on either side of the stage. The principal comic part was the inebriated swell, a disruptive audience member who would stagger in late and drunk, disturbing the first act, and thereafter would clamber or fall out of one of the lower boxes, getting involved in arguments and even fights with the various turns. Charlie could hardly wait to ditch the pale persona of Archibald Binks for the more reliable physical comedy of The Swell. 
In one of the opposite boxes you would find the naughty boy, dressed in a child's Eton suit and armed with buns and a pea-shooter, and his exasperated guardian, a dotty old uncle. The acts themselves, all introduced by a number man, would vary according to personnel, but usually there was a hapless vocalist reciting the trail of the Yukon, a female singer, the Swiss Nightingale, who would massacre a ditty entitled Come Birdie and Live With Me, and a singing group known as the Rustic Glee Club. A mustachioed magician, who insisted on the description prestidigitateur, would present a conjuring act of spectacular incompetence, and then the climax saw the introduction of the terrible turkey, a self-styled champion wrestler who would challenge all comers for a small cash prize. Naturally, the swell would take him on, and a free-for-all would ensue. Charlie was going to play the swell, of course, it was the number one part. Stan would understudy him, and also play the naughty boy. I would take the magician, the principal number two part, and Tilly would play my assistant, and also join in with one of the singing numbers. She was delighted to have something to do that was more than just walking on and looking attractive, although she did that too, of course. So that was Mummingbirds. In the States, it was billed as a night in an English music hall, as Fred Carner was always very anxious to play up the Englishness of his comedy company. That evening, we all gathered to celebrate. We abandoned the gloomy bar in the Bronx and journeyed down to a brighter and more cheerful saloon called Brady's on 7th Avenue between 41st and 42nd Street, near to our accommodation. As it was in the theatre district, they were accustomed to actors and actresses, so our ladies could come and go without being challenged by saloon girls jealously protecting their territory. We liked it there. It was a welcoming oasis of warm, thick, fermented odours of hops, malt and barley. We were in high spirits because of the change of sketch, not to mention that the spectre of failure had been banished from the tour, at least for the time being, and the to and fro around the three tables we'd pushed together was getting pretty noisy. Even Charlie, who usually contented himself with a small port, had taken a stein or three on board, and he was bullishly predicting that we would sweep all before us once we headed out west. A stranger appeared at his shoulder, a serious-looking, stocky individual with tight, curly hair and a suit that seemed to be about a size and a half too small, judging by the way his muscles bulged. He bowed politely and said in a soft and faintly Eastern European accent, "'Pardon me, but you are Charlie Chaplin, are you not?' Charlie turned in his chair to squint up at the newcomer. "'Who wants to know?' he said. "'I am sorry to disturb, but I believe we have a mutual friend.' "'We do? Yes, indeed.' And who would that be, might I ask? He is from Scotland. His name is Dr. Walford Bodie. Ha! Charlie barked. Bodie, really? The stranger had piqued our interest now, that was for sure. We'd all heard of Dr. Walford Bodie, as he was reputed to have been the highest paid entertainer back in our home country for years. His shows featured hypnotism, ventriloquism, and demonstrations of electricity, the most startling of which involved an electric chair, such as they used to dispatch murderers in America. Bodie would invite members of his audience on stage and electrocute them, stopping short of killing them outright, obviously, but making blue sparks fly from their hair. The real show-stopping routine, though, was the hypnotism. Not only would Bodie have members of the public scrabbling around like farmyard animals or hopping on one leg, he would also claim to be able to cure ailments that had baffled the medical profession by means of hypnotism or electricity or both. Bodie had come a bit of a cropper a couple of years earlier, owing to a court case brought by the Medical Defence Union, during the course of which a former assistant had revealed many of his trade secrets, and he was now widely believed to be a quack. "'He offered me a role in his Bodie show, you know,' Charlie confided to the table at large, before I joined Carno. "'Really? That would have been a good move, wouldn't it?' Huffreeve said. "'Harry Lauder started with him, you know, and George Formby.' "'One could not wish for a better mentor,' the curly-haired stranger said softly, nodding. Charlie snorted derisively. 
Well, first of all, I already had a job working for Casey's Circus, and Sid was pretty certain of getting me into Carno, so I wasn't looking just then. Most of all, though, I didn't want to end up as a stooge to a pompous fraud. A fraud, you say? Oh, yes. It happened that his stage manager did a remarkable impersonation of a rooster. The so-called doctor would pretend to haul him up from the stalls and put him into a trance, and then the fellow would simply do his party piece. After I knocked him back, I started doing a lampoon of him for Casey's, and do you know what? I hadn't even seen Bodie's show, didn't need to. I just put on that absurd upside-down moustache of his and strutted up and down like the big I am. I called myself Dr. Awful Bogey. <laughs> he quickly jumped to his feet and gave us a quick sample of his self-important quack pastiche. The assembled company laughed heartily at this as they were all in a good mood, but I noticed that the stranger remained stony-faced, and after a moment or two he simply turned on his heel and walked away. A while later I found myself at the bar, standing alongside the stranger who had approached Charlie. I'm afraid my friend was somewhat harsh earlier, I said. The stranger looked up and said, Yes, it was disappointing. I was interested to meet Chaplin, because I have heard people speak well of him, but I was not prepared for this arrogant, sneering puppy. He paused to take a drink, and I stayed perfectly still, not wanting to throw him off his stride. Sure enough, after a sip or two, the man continued his complaint. Yes, Dr. Bodie is a braggart, but this is part of being a showman, and I know him to be a generous man, a philanthropist. I even think he might be a kind of genius. Oh, well, there you are, I said. What do you mean? There's only room for one genius in Charlie's worldview, I'm afraid. The stranger's face hardened, and he turned to fix Chaplin with a glare that could have melted a glacier. So, I ventured, what line of work might you be in, sir? I'm appearing at the Orpheum, he said, still not switching that hostile glare off. My name is Harry Houdini. <laughs> The Sullivan and Considine dates would not begin until January, and Alf managed to book us in for a five-week residency at the American Music Hall to keep us ticking over until Christmas. Now that we were performing a different piece, there was another opportunity for the ubiquitous variety to have its say. On the Friday, Alf and I arrived to find Chaplin staring into the dressing room mirror with a face like thunder and a copy of the paper crumpled angrily in the waste bin. Alf groaned and fingered his bow tie as though it was a tightening noose. "'Ah, oh, don't tell me it's another stinker,' he muttered, discreetly retrieving the offending item from the trash and flattening it out on the table at the far end of the room from Charlie. "'We really cannot afford to put the wind up Considine just now, you know.' He found the review of a night in an English music hall, scanned through it, and then frowned. "'What's up, Alf?' I said. "'Nothing. Nothing at all. Looks perfectly fine to me. Won't do us any harm at all, thank goodness.' He went to fetch his scissors to clip it for his collection, and a few of us mustered around to see what was what. And this is what we read.' The current crop of Carno comedians features one or two very likely lads and lasses. We're going to be seeing and hearing a lot more of Mr. Arthur Dando, you mark my words. Stanley Jefferson's comic Timing Sparkles, with able support from Muriel Palmer and Charles Griffiths. No mention of Chaplin C at all. Not a peep. No wonder it ended up in the bin. The American Music Hall was on West 42nd Street, and we were still living over on 43rd Street in the distinctly humid brownstone building above the laundry, just a short step away, which meant we had a little more free time on our hands. Often in those weeks I would call on Tilly, and we would step out together. We liked to ride the trolley down to Battery Park and watch the boats on the Hudson, with the Goddess of Liberty silhouetted on the skyline beyond. If the weather was too inhospitable, we would sometimes go into the aquarium, where there were crabs the size of side tables and a distinctly malevolent octopus. One fine day, we agreed, we'd ride the ferry out to Liberty Island and take a closer look at the statue, but the wind whipping in from the Atlantic kept putting us off. Then there came an occasion when I called round to see her, and she was not there. 
It was a day when I knew her landlady would be out battling the bottle, and so I knocked particularly loudly on the door so as to be heard in the rooms upstairs. After a minute, it was Amy Reeves who answered. "'Oh, Arthur, hello. What can we do for you?' "'Good morning, Amy. I've come to call on Tilly.' "'Tilly? She went out a little while ago.' "'Oh?' "'Yes, she and Charlie, all wrapped up warm. They're going to see that Statue of Liberty, you know the one, on the island, in the river.' "'Yes,' I said, my guts falling down into my boots. "'I know the one.' At a loose end, and preoccupied by unwanted speculations, I found myself a saloon, and got on the outside of an unprofessional amount of beer for a three-show day, one foot up on a rail, and my elbows resting in pools of overspill. I lurched over to the theatre in time for the matinee, arriving just in time to see Tilly and Charlie getting out of a cab, giggling, their faces still flushed from the autumn wind. I followed them inside, telling myself that I'd wait for her to tell me about her excursion. And she did. Once Amy had told her that I'd been around to call, I surmised sourly. It was great fun, she said. You really must go. I was planning to, I said, adding, with you, under my breath. Another morning, I remember, I called at the 48th Street building, and the landlady told me Tilly was already out with another gentleman, giving me to understand with her shriveled prune look of disapproval that this confirmed everything she had always suspected about the girl. I traipsed back the five blocks to my own room, intending to lie on my back and stare at the ceiling while I imagined Tilly and Charlie out together. On the stairs, however, I met the little man himself, clearly just woken up and heading out in search of coffee and breakfast. "'Morning?' I said, surprised, and his reply was distorted by a yawn so wide I had a sudden mental flash of shoving a whole doughnut in there. He shuffled on down, and I frowned to myself. Here was a puzzler. So later at the theatre, I cornered Tilly and asked her about it. "'I called round this morning,' I said. "'Oh, did you?' she said, looking a little shifty, I thought. "'And you were out?' Yes. With? Tilly bit her lip. If you must know, I went for a very pleasant stroll in Central Park with Frank. Frank? Frank Melroyd, you mean? Yes, of course. How many Franks do you think I know? But, I said, feeling that a little more explanation was required. The landlady came to my door, said there was someone to see me, in that way she has of implying that I will go straight to hell, and I thought it was most likely you, or maybe Charlie, so I grabbed my hat and coat, came downstairs, and there was Frank on the doorstep. I couldn't very well turn him away, could I? And anyway, he's quite sweet and a perfect gentleman, so we spent a lovely morning together. I see. We just walked and talked. I did most of the talking, of course, chattering away. He's a really good listener. Well, that's because he hasn't an original thought in his head or anything interesting to say. Now, Arthur, you behave yourself. He's a friend, that's all. I'm friends with all you boys. I forced myself to smile, and she patted my arm. I see I shall have to get myself a system, she said, like the dance cards you can get at a ball. I watched Frank Melroyd closely that evening. He struck me as a dull fellow altogether, and I noted his receding hairline and the paunch pushing at his cardigan. Perhaps he wasn't much of a threat. At least he wasn't out with Charlie. A week or so before Christmas, I was just leaving my room to set off for the theatre, a little early. Alf Reeves was on a fortnight's trip out west to make some preparations for the upcoming tour, and so we'd been left to our own devices, which had made us, if anything, slightly more conscientious than usual. The cat was away, and the mice were on their best behaviour kind of style. Young Freddy was still sleeping one off, the beginner, but I was confident that he would make it in time for the show, and I fancied some air, or possibly some liquid. Anyway, I heard a furtive whistle, looked round, and there was Stan leaning halfway out of his doorway, beckoning me, with a finger pressed to his lips for quiet. I followed him into his room, and he was on pins, tremendously excited for some reason. "'What's up?' I said. "'Why the sneaking around?' "'Arthur,' he began, and then stopped, a big grin on his silly chops. "'What? Whatever is it?' I'm not supposed to tell anybody, but I can't see how to do it without your help. 
How to do what? What is it, you fool? Stop giggling. All right, all right. Stan calmed himself. The thing is, I need you to tell everyone in the company that I am unwell and they will have to cover for me. It will be easy enough to do. Tell Freddy to do the naughty boy and we can manage without anyone in the top box. Unwell? I said, puzzled. What's the matter with you? You look as fit as a flea. Yes, yes, I'm fine. And, and I will be there. But... He bit his lip. I threw my hands up. You've lost me, I'm afraid. Oh, look, Arthur, here it is. But you cannot tell a soul, understand? I nodded, puzzled. Charlie and I have a wager, you see. I say a wager. It's more of a challenge. A challenge? The thing is, I have more or less perfected an impersonation of Charlie, and in the last few weeks, I've been doing it in front of him when we were back here in the room at night, just trying to get him to cheer up, really, trying to make him laugh at himself. Anyway, last night, he challenged me to pass myself off as him, because that would be the clinching proof of my impression of him. And the more we talked about it, the more cocky I became, and the more, I don't know, arrogant he became about his own uniqueness... Yes, I can certainly imagine that, I said, until I ended up saying I could take his place in the show and no one would be any the wiser. I bet that went down well, I said. And he said, Charlie said, go on then. And so that's what I'm going to do. No. Yes. When? Today. This afternoon. This evening. You're kidding. I'm not. Alf will have your guts for garters, man. Alf's not here, is he? I found myself grinning almost as widely as Stan himself. So... Wait a minute, you need me to tell people that you are ill. Yes, that's it. I shall be there, you see, as Charlie. But Charlie isn't going to take my place. As if he could, I said. Well, exactly, Stan grinned. So I will be the one who is missing, you see. I nodded, appreciating the scheme. Also, Stan went on, since you know about it now, you can help me get into the theatre without anyone noticing. Once I'm made up, no one will give me a second glance. They'll just assume I'm Charlie, won't they? All I'll really have to do then is look bloody miserable and not talk to anyone. In a fizz of excitement, the two of us headed off to the theatre, without for once stopping off at a saloon for a stiffener. We slipped in at the stage door and climbed the stairs, with Stan lingering one landing behind me until we were sure the coast was clear. The only member of the Carnot company already in situ was Amy Reeves, on hand to take care of any problems arising in her husband's absence. "'What ho, Amy!' I cried, sweeping her into the ladies' dressing room. "'Any word from Alf? How's the Wild West treating him? Has he shot any Indians?' Amy tutted and wriggled free. You idiot, she said. He's in Chicago, you know, not Desperado Gulch. I trusted that Stan had quietly nipped into our dressing room while I was distracting our manager's wife. Oh, uh, by the way, I said, I don't think Stan is going to make it today. What? Yes, he was looking distinctly under the weather. He had the look of a man who would not dare to stray too far from the pan, if you get my drift. Hmm, Amy said, folding her arms in a best disapproving schoolmarm style. I suppose you lads pushed the boat out again last night, did you? Who, us? I said. Oh, well, I'd better tell Charlie, Amy said, making for the door. I stepped into her path and she frowned. He knows, I said. Ah, leaving it to me to sort out, is he? Typical. Happily, Amy decided to leave Charlie alone just then, and she made a brief announcement once the company was assembled later. The news that he was stepping up from Super to the featured part of Naughty Boy took care of Freddy's hangover pretty quickly, and nobody gave more than a fleeting glance towards the swell in his finery, adding a perfectionist's finishing touches to his makeup rather than engaging in dressing room banter. Already Stan had Charlie off to a tea, I thought. Even though I had been sworn to secrecy, I was absolutely bursting to tell Tilly about the challenge, wanting to share the excitement, so I lurked outside the ladies' dressing room, hoping to grab a moment with her before we went up to the wings. As the company bustled up the stairs, I saw Emily come out, and Muriel, and Amy, but no sign of my magician's assistant. "'Sst, Amy!' I hissed. "'Where's Tilly?' 
Oh, she's unwell, I'm afraid. You can manage without an assistant today, can't you? After all, it's not as though any of the tricks have to actually work, is it? <laughs> unwell, I said with a sinking feeling. Yes, both Tilly and Stan missing at once. I hope there's not something going around, don't you? Come on, we'd better get up there. Chop, chop, eh? She skipped away, leaving me standing alone in the corridor, a chill sense of dread sweeping over me, because I knew it wasn't Tilly and Stan who were missing. It was Tilly and Charlie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.